Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Last week I gave you a reading of the trial of Jesus. Maybe you weren't prepared for that. What I concluded in the sermon was that two kingdoms are clashing in that trial. Two notions of sovereignty, two notions of truth are being contested, two understandings of what kings and kingdoms are all about. And that's the significance of the argument between Pilate and Jesus. And so I concluded that Jesus' trial is challenging one world, and at the same time, it's putting into place another world. In other words, at least in human conception. And so Jesus' trial, his death, they're certainly not an affirmation of the laws and reasons of Rome or of Athens or even of Jerusalem. But it is a challenge to those forms of law and reason so that a Christian defense, a Christian theology is going to undo and reorder human thought and human imagination, how we conceive of things, how we think of things. And the alternative interpretive frame in theology is to see the human economy, human government, human notions of law and justice, and even human reason as coming into conflict with the divine economy of salvation. That's what salvation is about. That a world of sin and death is being undone by the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ. And so if ever there were a point in history where two worlds, two notions of truth, two economies, two notions of justice stood opposed, it's the trial of Jesus. Now I can imagine in your response, though nobody said this, But you might have said this, oh, you're doing that thing that preachers do. You're telling us a story and you're putting too much weight on the story. It's entertaining, but you're stretching things. Isn't this just one little episode, one little story? And maybe a minor part of the, maybe it doesn't even count for anything. You know, getting the real stuff over there in Romans and the epistles, And so maybe you would say, you're putting too much weight on this event. And what I want to explain today, and why I think history and the particular history of Christ is meant to bear the main weight of our theology and of our very notion of truth. First of all, you know, the cultural and religious world that we've kind of inherited And to tell this story, it would take several volumes to say why we live in the world that we do. But let me just tell you about it. And that is that I think in the world in which we live, the natural and the supernatural, it's divided from one another. The historical and the heavenly are divided. And Christianity has been reduced to a kind of going to heaven when you die sort of religion. As a result, the very center of biblical Christianity, you know, if we had to find the center, where would we put it? Well, it would be on the bodily resurrection of Jesus. 
and the new creation that unfolds then from the bodily resurrection of Jesus. But because of the nature of our understanding, maybe, this is often obscured. And the strange effect this has is that we kind of divide the world up like any good Greek Platonist would. And we say, well, all the good stuff, you know, are up there in the abstract world, the forms. And truth is primarily concerned with truth statements or doctrines or abstractions. But when we say Christianity is true, we're actually changing the definition of truth. I think we've missed that. We point to the historical person and we say, you know, as Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I believe we're to take that quite literally. And of course, Judaism had prepared Christians to look not to the heavens, but to space-time historical events. That is, the unfolding, the completion of Israel's story is the changing of the world in which we live. This was the picture that their temple had, that heaven and earth are conjoined and coming together. And they saw the work of the Messiah as accomplishing the work of the temple, the completion of the story. I believe we're in the era in which that completion is unfolding, the reality of it, the living embodiment of Israel's God in Christ incarnate. And this means that we encounter truth, we encounter God in history. And it also means that our division between, oh, in one place we've got the natural and then we've got the supernatural, the historical and the heavenly, I think we need to trade that concept in. And so what we're being taught in the Old Testament, we've seen this you know, in the story of Joseph and his brothers, the way that the story of Joseph, the way we read that story, you, know, you, my brothers, you meant all of this for evil, but God meant it for good. And I was sent here to Egypt to prepare the way for you to survive. And the truth unfolds in this story. And I think this is the way that this is the characteristics of, of truth in Scripture. It does not specifically indicate God's plan or God's intervention in every instance. In the case of Joseph, you know, Joseph says, this is what this means. There are other stories, you know, 2 Samuel says that David committed adultery. And then we read what happens to David's family. Absalom rebels. Did the one thing cause the other? And was God still working in that situation? We know that Absalom's Rebellion is connected to David's adultery. The events have consequences. You know, this is the text of Esther. When the Jews are being threatened with death and they have a prayer meeting and a fasting in Susa. They hold a three-day fast to pray for deliverance. The Bible doesn't say specifically, but it says in a kind of laconic fashion, that night, the king could not sleep. He was troubled about the decision he had made. And so too in the New Testament, when Paul is going to explain the truth to King Agrippa, he says to the king, these things were not done in a corner. That is, he's going to explain the truth of who Christ is, of who he is, 
through this open testimony of history. You can inspect these truths. And so truth is not simply something inside of us. I'm not saying it's ex exclusive of that. It's not simply subjective. Nor is it something outside the world, as the you know, Greeks thought. Truth is public. It's historical. It's open to inspection. Events in history bear meaning. They have consequences. Certainly it includes what we are subjectively, objectively as people. But what it does do, it invites a certain perspective in the imagination. That is, that where do we turn to find the truth? The task is not, oh, now here's a nice story about Joseph and his brothers. And so let's draw out some theory or let's, no, you need to tell the story. The events bear the meaning. And so too in the New Testament, when we read the story of Jesus, we don't say, okay, now we read the story, let's set that aside. And now let's draw out the real stuff, the doctrine. No, the story bears the meaning. The person and work of Christ is a narrative. It's a story. It's history. And we encounter God as we recognize him in particular historical events. You know, even the creeds, they begin. These things happened under Pontius Pilate. Luke tells us these things, you know, when talking about the birth of Jesus. This happened when Quirinius was governor. And so it's important to say this because we're showing how God is at work in history, how heaven and earth are coming together in the kingdom of God. And so we have to turn to history, to an unfolding story, to find out what God's up to. To find out how the kingdom of God works, how it was inaugurated, how it continues. And so, you know, I told you the ontological argument. We don't begin the way Anselm begins. He tells in his text to his monks, he's writing for the monks at Beck, go into your room and close the door. And then close the door of your mind. And then you can think the greatest thought that can be thought. To think the greatest thought that can be thought, you must think, you get the point. That's not Christianity, that's something else. I don't know what that is. Truth is not closed off into this sort of private world where I journey into the deep recesses of my mind to find it. Instead, I do what Paul did before Agrippa. I tell the story of Jesus. These things happened. And we can check it out. Paul says there are 500 witnesses. And I myself, he says, have encountered the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus. And so as I go on to relate this story, like Paul, I might describe in my own life. You know, before this was my understanding, and now I know I was changed by it. In other words, the story continues. The story intersects with all of history, including, you know, large-scale history. Where's the world going? What's its purpose? But also small-scale, where am I going? And in this understanding, you know, I do not point at the stars and give you an argument for God, like the watch argument. We could point to the mechanics of a watch and say, well, a watch is designed, the world is designed, therefore both must 
have a designer, therefore God exists. Now that's an argument. It just happens not to be Christianity. That's not what's happening in the Bible. It's logical enough, but it can go terribly wrong and did go terribly wrong. The perfect watchmaker would in fact create a perfect world that doesn't need God at all. And I'm afraid that it's precisely because of these understandings of how we arrive at God through reason that we live in a world in which God has been sectioned off. And we don't recognize as Psalms 19 describes it. It's not a cosmological argument. It's not a teleological argument. But it's just there in the Bible, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making the wise simple. And then he goes on, the fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. There is neither an argument from design to designer nor is it an argument from the world to God. It's just the fact that one who knows his Torah, one who knows his Bible, already understands God is abundantly evident in the world. We do not really infer from the world that God might exist. We see his existence all around us. As N.T. Wright puts it, the heavenly bodies are praising God and it is the psalmist who has to inform his reader or singer, and actually it's a song, they're singing about it. Psalms 19 moves from the all-penetrating heat of the sun to the all-penetrating wisdom of Torah. And it was written by one who already knew what he wanted to say about Torah and was using the sun as an illustration. And so it's not, oh, the psalmist was contemplating, and I'm not saying this can't happen, I'm just saying that's not what happens in the Bible. You know, somebody's out looking at the sun and think, oh, I bet God, there must be a God like the sun. Now, many people, in fact, do that. But they get the wrong God. In Japan, Amaterasu is the goddess of the sun. But that's not what we have in Psalms 19. And so it's not an argument of someone trying to convince a skeptic to believe in God on the basis of the world. But it's drawing out a truth of how the truth of God and the truth of the world hold together and they overlap. And the presumption is the same which will be fulfilled in Jesus. That we need to study and find out to find out history in order to understand what God is up to. That is the meaning is in the details. Just as the heavens declare the glory of God so too the story of Jesus declares the glory of God in greater detail in the actual events that carry the meaning. Now maybe my analogy fails here in part because there really is not a reading into history in any sort of a, a priori me, I meaning 
That is that we don't just look at history and already know what's happening. We have to look at the history to understand what's happening. I'm afraid that's the danger. That we take our theology and then imagine that that's what we're encountering rather than to look at the actual events and there understand what God is doing. We can't surmise that those who are apart from the actual events that we can arrive at an understanding of this story otherwise. Okay, that's where we started, right? That we live in a world where we probably are not expecting to encounter God in the way that the Jews expected to encounter God. I'm saying we should. We need to look at events as the first century Jew would look at and understand what was happening in ancient Israel. And so the, the equivalent you know, of their teleological argument or their cosmological argument, maybe it's the temple. God is already counted on as part of the cosmos and they expected to see the completion of the work of creation from inside within history so for example what would it mean that someone arose from the dead in the first century would that have any meaning for a Jew oh you bet that has all kinds of meaning because they are prepared to understand and see the meaning of the resurrection of Jesus as the inauguration of the new kingdom, of the new creation. It's the completion of the story that begins in Genesis, made complete from the inside. And so once we've been prepared by the story of Israel and its traditions, especially those surrounding the temple, we understand that as in the microcosmos of the temple, God's purpose, his telos, his design, is to bring heaven and earth together, and he's accomplishing that in Christ, that the dwelling of God might be with man. You know, this is the great Emmanuel. This purpose is fully worked out in God with us, in Christ, who comes as this new temple. And we then are the living stones of that temple in the vision of Peter. We are the image bearers. We are the ones who work out the love of God and the love of neighbor. That is the temple business that we're about. Now that we've put this in place, let me go back. I won't preach my whole sermon from last week. But go back and look at the two trials that we examined last week. You know, in the trial of Socrates, there's really no argument about what sort of world we live in. It's just assumed. There's no challenge to truth. There's no challenge to the law. There's not even really, you know, Socrates just says, I'm ignorant. And that's what my wisdom consists of. I know I'm ignorant. Socrates' main argument then is just, you know, when he discusses things, the Socratic method is just to show people that they're more ignorant than he is. It's an important trial, I guess, in some ways, but mainly it's a trial about keeping the status quo. Socrates clings to the city. He never challenges the city. He'd rather die, and he does die, rather than be banished from the city. And so there's no argument about the role of law, religion, or the role of the city. But I don't think we should read Jesus' trial the way that we read Socrates' trial. Jesus' trial, his death, it's not an affirmation of what's happening to him. It's a challenge all the way. The forces of Rome, 
the forces of Israel. They all come to kill Christ. How are we to read Jesus' trial? It's a challenge to those forces. And so a defense of Christian theology would undo or reorder human thought. And so the point of the trial of Jesus, it's not really a trial about Jesus' guilt or innocence, is it? In fact, that's what Pilate keeps saying. He said, the man's innocent. The world's understanding is really brought in confrontation with God. And what the question, you know, who's, who's on trial here? In a sense, Pilate's on trial. The Jews are on trial. What is the nature of the judgment? What you would do with Jesus, right? Jesus says, well, Pilate, you're guilty, but you're not as guilty as those who have delivered me to you. This is Pilate's question. Don't you understand, Jesus, that I'm the one and I'm calling the shots here? And Jesus says, you're not calling the shots. You're not in power. And your powerlessness is evident because of what you're doing to me. And Pilate's effort, you know, he tries again and again to free Jesus. He knows he's not guilty. He's been warned and have nothing to do with this man. And of course, Jesus has said, that's how you're judged. He's, Jesus has said this throughout his ministry. What you do with me determines judgment. He says to Pilate, those who've delivered you to me are worse according to these eternal judgments. Beyond that, all claims that follow in your stead. You know, really, it's a challenge to human sovereignty, human kings, human laws. And then Jesus is paraded around. Pilate himself says, well, he's the king. You know, we, we can read that. It's a mock trial. He dresses him purple. He puts a crown on him. But Pilate says again and again, here's your king. And he's not saying it ironically in the end. They say, crucify him. Pilate says, you want me to crucify your king? And then he puts on the cross in three languages so no one will miss it. King of the Jews. And they come to him and say, shouldn't it read, he claimed to be king of the Jews? Pilate said, no. What I've written, I've written. And so the testimony that we have from the representative of Caesar, from the prefect of Rome, is that Jesus is in fact king of the Jews. And so I think we're called to draw conclusions about the nature of truth in this trial. Pilate says to Jesus, what is truth? I think we should draw some conclusions. Oh, maybe the truth is standing before Pilate, and Pilate is incapable of recognizing the truth. But we should not be so guilty. You know, Pilate, he's not a completely unsympathetic character. We can identify with his struggle. In fact, I think we're meant to identify with his struggle. We're to enter into the psychology of the man. We can understand this is the way this era is going to be marked. Jesus Christ crucified under Pontius Pilate. That's the way he's going to go down in history. That's the Nicene Creed. But the judgment, you know, it's not just Pilate that is judged. It's every sovereign. It's every king. I think that if we read this trial correctly, that comes under judgment. It's the very notion of sovereignty. The trial of Jesus makes a difference that life and death, human sovereignty, judging between these two is rendered illegitimate. Nobody questioned, you know, does Rome have the power to dispose of some slave, some Jew? No one questioned that Pilate could do that. 
until he did it. And now all of history looks back on that moment and said, the sovereign in that situation, Pilate, was not the true sovereign. The sovereign in the White House is not the true sovereign. The sovereigns that we would recognize, the laws that we would recognize, are challenged by Christ. You know, this is very literal. Caesar would claim to be Prince of Peace. That was his title. He would claim to be sovereign God. And after Christ, all of history, in effect, is kind of a trial in which no one can make that claim again in light of what happened in the trial of Jesus. The principalities and powers which once would have just made these sorts of eternal pronouncements, they're now stopped short. And we can say, you have no right. And there are basic human rights. We are all witnesses to the crisis of history in which the oppressed, that's who Jesus is representative of, you know, he says, as you do it to the least of these, you're doing it to me. The marker of Jesus' judgment is now before all of us. Those who pass sovereign judgments, those who presume to be sovereign kings, those who commit genocide, lynching, mass slaughter, capital punishment, I believe they're exposed. They're exposed as evil usurpers of the true sovereign. I don't think it would have occurred to anyone prior to Christ to question the moral authority of Caesar or the moral authority of Pilate. Now we don't hesitate to make that criticism. Now judgment is continually rendered according to what do you do to the least of these? What do you do to the poor, to the impoverished, to those on your border, the imprisoned, the hungry? We do this because of Jesus. The judgment is rendered on the basis of how you treat him and how you treat these. So the conclusion, there are significant events in history which pertain to eternity, and that's the way what we're encountering in Christ. He's confronting evil in the form of Pilate, in the form of the leading Jews. And all of these forces unite in the death of Jesus, not because that's a one-off event, but because that's the way the principalities and powers work, and that's what they would always do with the sovereign sent from God. This is not the law of God that does him in, but it's the culmination of the outworking of the law of sin and death. And Jesus is overturning that law. And so Christ has not come to fulfill the law of sin and death in which man passes judgment on God. Remember I told you this is actually the Lutheran reading. They're saying that the Roman law, the Jewish law, and God's law are all the same law. That's precisely wrong. The scene of final judgment in Matthew pictures the Son of Man in the place of sovereignty. I think that's where we're to see, you know, that's what we're to see in the trial of Jesus. That Jesus sitting on the throne of glory and the judgment held in abeyance at the trial of Jesus has separated out through the course of history the true sovereign from the impostors. We can now name the liars. We can now name the Antichrist. We can now name those who stand against the sovereignty of God. And we need to name them. Or we're not being Christian. He who would presume to sit in the place of judgment, where life is at the disposal of his power, who commits the final blasphemy of claiming to have the power of God, 
usurping the king of glory, we need to say, no, there's only one king. There's only one sovereign, and that's Christ. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.